Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader Stay Home Puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, February 18th, 2022. Here's a headline in the New York Times that I just love. I don't even know if we're going to talk about it, but I just love this headline. Judge rules attorney general may question Trump and family. They're closing in on Donnie. Ah, that's the sound of Donnie choking. They're closing in on like four fronts. And now MAGA, well, not really MAGA, their public party has to figure out what do we do about Donnie? Now, it's good to know they have troubles too. Republicans, MAGA, despicable bunch. Anyway, we have a lot to talk about. And uh, so I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself and then we'll get down to it. Take it away, distinguished guest. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be back. Um, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University and the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and a contributing writer at The Week. And uh, great great to be here. I can't wait to dive into all of the terrible things that are happening in the world. Yes, some of them are directed at you. And uh, I'm just going to say this right now, because uh, for the weekend shows, two of my guests uh, are at the moment, I didn't plan this, this is just how it happened, targets of a lot of hate on Twitter. Uh, David today, we'll talk about that. And tomorrow I bring on my old friend, Kevin Blackstone, uh, sports writer uh, extraordinaire, uh, who will be, uh, when I say tomorrow, I mean he will be on the Sunday drop, uh, who will be talking about uh, his comments regarding the Super Bowl halftime show and uh, the unleashing of hate directed at him um, from lovers of the halftime performers, including one of the halftime performers himself, Snoop Dogg. So a lot of hate being generated at some of my friends, and I'm going to come to their assistance. All right, David Ferris. Uh, David comes on the show every other week and is always talking about things from a leftist perspective. He's always trying to give the Democrats advice, uh, which, of course, they ignore, and because um, they never take uh, sound advice. This time around, though, he seems to gotten in trouble with, I guess, the left. So that is really bizarre, man. You, you, you just go in a little different direction from the marching orders and man, 
they come at you. Come so, bricks, like you know. Uh, so why don't you take it away from the top? Tell the tale of your uh, tweets uh, and the response. Let's start with the tweets themselves. Go ahead. Sure. I mean, so this is um, this is just some COVID politics stuff, you know. Um, and, but I, I didn't really think of it as politics when I posted it. I was uh, <clears throat> I was coming back down from from downtown last Thursday, um, teaching uh, at Roosevelt, and um, just you know had a particularly bad day, I guess. And the walk back to the Metra from you know Roosevelt's basically on the lake, um, so the walk back to Ogilvy from uh, from the lake was just like the most depressing. <laughs> just the most depressing walk I've had in a long time. And it was like sort of the, the culmination of me commuting down there on the Metro since August. Um, and, you know, the, those empty restaurants, empty bars, the, the kind of foot traffic that you would associate with um, with a rush hour commute um, out of the train stations in downtown Chicago was just, you know, maybe, maybe 20% of what it used to be. Um, and, you know, we were, were on the downslope of this uh, Omicron surge. We're basically back to where we were um, before Delta. And, um, you know, I got, I got home, um, poured myself a drink and, um, (laughs) talked about how sad it made me. Um, and, uh, and now I don't, I don't think it's sustainable. The, the discourse of that day was, um, based on Yasha Monk's article in the Atlantic, which was stupidly called, um, open everything. Right. Um, and, and Monk is like, yeah, I know everything is open. Right. But like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Right. Like restaurants are open, but no one is going, um, you know, public transit is open, but no one is going. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, he, his, his line is people are being too cautious and they're not trusting the vaccines. And if you're boosted, you know, you're like more likely to die by lightning, this, this kind of thing. And, uh, it, it set off one of these just like classic Twitter, um, stupidity wars where people just tweet the headline of things without reading it. Um, and I found there was a, you know, on, on what I, I don't know what to call it, Ben, like the COVID left, right? Like the, the people who are most in favor of ongoing restrictions um, until, you know, such time as everyone feels comfortable. Um, there was this kind of glib response, that, like, like, oh, man, everything is open. Like, what are you complaining about? Like, you can go to the restaurant whenever you want. Um, and, and what I was trying to get at, and I, maybe I did it a little bit unartfully, was to say, you know, Chicago's in serious trouble. Um, if, if we have permanently oriented away from um, from a from a daily commute and and from the loop, um, that is not something that Chicago can just Chicago in particular can just change on a dime. Right? Um, I don't know if I've ever come on the show and complained about how every tra- every every single train in this region goes to the same place of um, <laughs> downtown Chicago, and that's a very you cannot just like reorient that right. Like if um, if businesses decide to not bring workers back downtown, and I understand a lot of people like to work from home, and and that's great. But um, uh, if the loop disappears as a as a going entity, the way it's been since I've been here, um, the city's in the city's in real trouble, and pe- people are not going to be insulated from that just because they're working from home. Um, so that was the story. I just said, hey, you know, um, Chicago's in real trouble. It makes me sad. Uh, here's all the things that are different about downtown than than used to be. Um, I know everything's open too, but, um, you, you know, at, at some point we have to get to a, we have to get to a stage where people are comfortable being inside together without masks or, or else we're, we're really talking about a fundamental revision of our, of the, of the human, of human society. Um, and Chicago and Illinois are now, you know, among the last places with mask mandates. Um, 
and I think um, the politics on this are, are, are shifting a little bit. You know, um, there are still public opinion majorities for for mass mandates and school mass mandates. Uh, that that's been that's become really clear over the last couple of weeks. But the but the majorities are a lot smaller. Um, there's a lot of polling to suggest that people have really had it. Um, they may say like, yes, I favor the mandates, but they're also really deeply in their souls, <laughs> really tired of them. Um, and, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's real political trouble for Democrats, but I also think it's, um, you know, I don't think it was a coincidence that all the, the bunch of democratic governors sent out coordinated messages last week saying, okay, we're either lifting our, our mask mandates now, or we're going to lift them you know, at the end of the month or the end of next month, next month. Um, and so, uh, initially, uh, you know, the, 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 it was a tweet thread, right. And it got, it got sent out by, I, I don't know how to call it the, the, the left's COVID right wing. Does that make sense? Like, uh, people like, uh, Alex McGillis, uh, who used to be at the Atlantic and, um, other people who have been calling for schools to be open the whole time, this kind of thing, uh, which is not where I am, but, uh, you know, that's, um, that's that's the type, right? So so Thursday was great. I was like, oh look at this, you know, this struck a nerve. And then Friday, <laughs> Friday I became what they call in the business the main character on Twitter, um, which is uh, not not what you want to be. At. There's one main character a day, and you don't want to be it. Um, and there was like this comedian who who tweeted it out and said, look, this guy wants you to go. To, this guy wants you to force force you to drink in bars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And from there, it was just like a whisper down the lane distortion of what I was saying from, you know, like, I'm a little bit worried about the vitality of my city to like this, this fascist wants you to force you to commute and, and go to bars and doesn't care if you die. And oh my God, there's still, there's still a lot of disease out there. And I'm like, yeah, man, I know that. I just, <laughs> I was just saying I support lifting the mass mandates on the 28th of February. Um, if the metrics continue to go in that direction, like I really was not trying to make any kind of, uh, you, you know, um, I didn't want to form the Martini Stasi to, to force people to, to escort them to Half Acre or whatever. You know, so that's what happened. Um, I don't know if, if your listeners have ever been the target of one of these pylons on on Twitter, but it's not um, it's not good for the soul. <laughs> my wife, my wife texted me. She was Twitter's a very bad place. Why are you on there? You should just get off. And I was like, I know I should, I know I should, but I won't. <laughs> so. Um, anyway, I, I think the bigger picture here is that um, the Democratic Party's consensus on ongoing mass mandates um, in general, I think in particular in schools, is fracturing in a way that I find really politically ominous if there's not a, a kind of a, a change in direction before the midterm elections. Now, this is all in a world without further variants that, that set us back again. Right, but assuming that like it's going to be Omicron or some 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 variant of Omicron circulating for the foreseeable future, um, I do I do think it's important to offer the public some very clear off ramps off ramps for the ongoing mitigations, and not to talk about mass mandates like they're not a restriction. Um, I, I think is something that has always also rubbed me the wrong way. Right? Like it's like I do it. I, my three year old wears a mask for forty hours a week. He does it. Um, but let's not pretend that it's not a restriction and let, let's not pretend that people like it. Um, it is a, it is an ongoing and tangible reminder of the ways that our, our lives have been changed. And, 
I think we are approaching a point where you can make a very good argument that um, um, a return to, to, to relative normalcy for, for people who feel like the vaccine and the booster have, have made them safe um, is, is called for. And that um, will obviously can create ongoing challenges for people like me. I have a child under five who can't be vaccinated. God knows when that's going to happen. That's a whole other thing I could yell about for, for 10 minutes on here. But um, um, I, I think that the asking the rest of society to sacrifice on, on behalf of, of the folks that are going to continue to be vulnerable and definitely is, is, is probably not going to work. And it's also, I think, delaying some very important conversations that we need to have um, about how we're going to protect the immune compromise beyond just be like, you just get to wear a mask for the rest of your life. <laughs> right? Like what other, what other legal accommodations can we make to people who feel like, who feel like their world really has changed forever. Um, and I don't see those conversations happening because all we're talking about is masks. So that was the that was the long and short of it. Sorry, I've been going on for a while here, Ben. So, no. Um, <laughs> uh, did anybody actually threaten your life? Yeah, a couple. You know, a couple of uh, direct messages. Uh, direct messages. Wow. And they what they like you you watch it, kid. We're going to come after you, type thing. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you know, um, uh, there was one person who wrote like, you know, I I know where Roosevelt is, like this this kind of thing, right? Um, it's not the first time. Um, the, the second worst day I've ever had on Twitter was like the day that I offered some mild criticism of, of Bernie Sanders's campaign strategy. <laughs> that also that also was a very bad scene. Um, so I, I think that there's this there's just a there's a lot of outlier human beings on Twitter who um, are just whatever their political orientation. They're just the kind of people that like to make threats and um, and, and to spread misery. Um, and I did discover a magic tool that I, I wish that I'd known about before, which is that you can mute notifications from anyone that does not follow you. Um, and so when I, when I did that, it just, I was like, oh, okay, well this, I guess this controversy is over. And I just texted, <laughs> I texted some friends, like, just let me know if something really crazy happens, but I'm, I'm kind of not paying attention to this anymore because, um, you know, you keep trying to engage and, I see. and people, people are not listening to you. So, um, that's fine. This is really not a tale of woe about me, Ben. You know, I mean, I write op-eds for a living and it comes with the territory. Um, so, but, uh, but I do think that the larger issues about, of COVID for Chicago, for big cities, um, kind of for the way we live, is something that we're going to address sooner, sooner rather than later, just for our own sanity and, and for our political prospects in, in the fall. Wow. Well, there's so much to unpack uh, on, on your opening uh, statement. Uh, let's pretend it's like a trial and you just did, delivered your opening statement. Uh, starting with the, the, the least significant, I must start with the least significant. I urge everybody to get off Twitter. Twitter is just deranged land. Uh, it's the, uh, it's, I, I put Twitter and Slack uh, in the same sort of category. Uh, and, and then in the middle of a COVID where everybody's locked in, it just exacerbates it. It just allows people to say stuff that they would never say face to face or on the phone or even in a letter. Uh, it just allows that much more bombastic rhetoric, uh, from people talking tough. Uh, and they would never do it at face to face. And so many troubles and it's caused by people feeling like they could say any old thing they want to say because they got free expression in this country, which by the way, they don't even believe in because they don't want anybody who disagrees with them to be able to say anything. So you don't even believe in what you assert that you believe. Bill Maher doesn't even believe in it. Okay. Everybody asserts it. 
when they ever when they championed the right of Colin Kaepernick to take a knee, I'll believe them. Maybe Bill Maher did that. I don't remember. Anyway, um, so yeah, so we'll start with that. Your wife is absolutely correct. Uh, and uh, what can I do? You're going to go down the pack that Twitter path because you enjoy it. Uh, who am I to talk? I spent about an hour and a half last night watching basketball highlights. So who am I to talk about your Twitter habits? Number two, masks. Uh, yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, they're restrictive. Uh, and this is weird me speaking. And I'm not on Twitter, so people can get really mad at me for saying this. But it doesn't exist if I'm not on Twitter. I like them. I'm, this is weird. I, like, I'm going to be wearing a mask for <laughs> the rest of I want to go on an airplane. Boom. I don't, if the COVID or no, I'm wearing a mask. Go on a train. Boom. I'm wearing a mask. I even wear a mask. I went to the Bulls game uh, on Wednesday. My beloved Chicago Bulls, victorious. Uh, and I wore a mask. Well, you're supposed to, but nobody does. So, um, but, and then downtown Chicago. Oh my God. We could do a whole show on downtown Chicago. I've been writing about downtown Chicago and the economic development decisions of the city of Chicago. And, uh, I agree with you on that point that sooner or later I, we're going to have to go back to offices. And I say this is a guy who will probably be doing this podcast from an attic or a, uh, an Airbnb in Los Angeles for the rest of my life. As long as I'm doing a podcast, I probably will never go back to a studio, my beloved little studio. But you are right. I mean, unless we're willing to look to a future in any kind of strategic way in which there is no workforce which would totally restructure absolutely our whole view of downtown and all these development deals are hinging on leases that will fill up the towers that are being constructed. Uh, and uh, the city and the state and the county are anticipating tax proceeds, uh, receipts from the, the landlords, the property owners who are anticipating rents unless we're kind of unless we're one step ahead of ourselves and figuring out a, a world with those things don't exist we're in a lot of trouble so yeah i'm with you um but i want to talk about the politics because from the get-go david the there's i mean i tend to blame everything on trump and why not this has been a partisan issue from the get-go and uh, so Trump pushed, MAGA pushed Trump into taking a strong stand or to at least mock masks and mock restrictions while trying to get credit for, <laughs> for creating the vaccine. He's doing, he does it all, Donnie Trump. Uh, and so lefties are no different than MAGA, to a certain degree. If you poke them a certain way, they respond predictably. So if Donnie Trump is for something, they're against it. And now they don't want to say they were wrong or, you know, or maybe they were too extreme or maybe they should rethink what they believe because situation has changed or any of the above. But they're stuck in, no, I'm not gonna. It's like everybody is just really a fourth grader in the cafeteria. And you got caught in the middle of it uh, with your Twitter feed. But that's illustrative of a bigger problem the Dems are going to face politically because I got a feeling, to quote uh, the Beatles, that the country has moved on by and large. They're taking a more Joe Rogan view about the, of this without the fact that he's resisting the vaccine. When I mean, most people are sane, uh, <laughs> Rogan, I could beat it with this 
the snake oil I'm drinking every day. So I think, and you could talk about this specifically, I do believe that politically speaking, the Dems have to make a move and do, make a shift or they're, they could just exacerbate all the disadvantages they're already facing uh, with November's election. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think even, and maybe even particularly among subsets of people who have been taking this really, really seriously the whole time and, you know, skipped the holidays and kept their kids out of school and um, shut down their social lives, except for a handful of people. Um, you know, this, this describes me, right. But um, there is, you do reach a certain point where um, it's like, I've, we've done everything that we can to protect our family. And I, you know, at the current pace of the FDA, my kid's not going to be fully vaccinated until like 20, 2035. Um, and, and you, you kind of have to, you have to adjust your, your risk matrix a, a little bit, I think, but I, I think a bigger issue here is, um, you know, one of, one of the things people kept screaming at me over and over again on Twitter, um, I do, I do at some point just want to message somebody and be like, what, what do you hope to accomplish by saying the same thing to me over and over again? But they were like, there's a 9-11 every other day. You know, it's 9-11 every other day. And I'm like, I, I know that there are some um, fully vaccinated, uh, immune compromised people, mostly elderly who are dying. And it's extremely sad. But to compare what's happening to 9-11 right now is like, okay, yes, a 9-11 every, every other day. But if the, if the towers were full of people that knew the planes were coming and decided to stay anyway, um, that is, there's a, there's a certain extent to which uh, the overwhelming majority of the people who are getting sick and getting seriously sick and dying right now are, are people who have made an intentional choice not to protect themselves and their families. Um, and not just that, but like someone deciding not to go out to eat in Chicago, you know, a triple vax a boosted person who just survived Omicron, <laughs> not going out to eat is really not actually doing much of anything to protect that, that group of people. Um, because they, they, they mostly cannot be reached at this point. Um, and it, it is they who are causing the crisis and in, in the hospitals that we're all worried about. And, and that's receding too. Um, and so I think the, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Democrats who, who are vaxxed and boosted and had Omicron <laughs> recently and, and are feeling like, okay, <laughs> I don't know what else needs to happen here, but, um, but, but I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, um, in, in my own social circle and just anecdotally as part of this, this blow up who are, are like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm resuming most of my life right now. Um, and I think the, the Democrat, you know, Pr JB Pritzker and Phil Murphy in New Jersey and Gavin Newsom, God love his soul. Um, none of these guys, none of them want to be the last person with a mask mandate, you, you know, um, because, as you said, most most of the country has moved on. I mean, most states don't have mass mandates. Um, a lot of a lot of even big municipalities in the South don't have mass mandates. Um, a lot of kids are going to school without masks. And uh, I'll tell you, just eyeballing the case charts for Omicron, you'd have to do some work to convince me that this that the masking had an effect on a, on a macro level. And obviously, masks work, and they they protect you, and they protect other people. Um, but in a situation where a lot of people are not doing it, um, the transmission is really happening in places where we have legally said you don't need to wear a mask, like restaurants. Um, and in a situation where most, if you've been outside, right, most people don't know how to wear a mask anyway. Um, we're <laughs> not doing it right. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> Every day I get out on an elevator at, at school and there's one person in there that I'm like, it's been two years, you know, it goes, <laughs> it goes over your nose. It goes over your nose. 
it's not, it's not a muzzle. You know, it, it's, you, come on. It's like a, it was sometime around 2015, you go to an airport and there's still people that were like, do I have to take off? My, do, uh, does my belt need to, t-? it's like, it's been 15 years since 9-11. Yeah. Like, you know how this works. Like, you know how to get through an airport line. Please, come on. Um, so... <laughs> Anyway, I, what I'm worried about is a situation like like what happened with Virginia, um, where it seems like there were some subset of Democratic K-12 parents in Virginia who retroactively looked back on what had happened during the pandemic and got mad about it because there was some emerging consensus that like maybe it wasn't necessary to shut the schools down for as long as we did. Um, now, that's debatable, right? But like the perception, I think, has taken hold. Um that, you know, schools should have only been closed for a couple of months in March 2020 or something. And then, you know, we should have just sort of like masked up and carried on um, for the for the sake of the kids. And um, I'm, I'm worried that in November, people, even in people in like Illinois, are going to look back and, and be like, wow, you know, uh, Wisconsin's been, you know, living mostly free this whole time. And we've had these masks on the whole time. And I, now I don't think it was really necessary past a certain point or, or um, necessary after Omicron. So I, I do think it's important. Um, you don't want to chase the stupidest states around like a, like a dog, right? <laughs> but, um, but I do think the, the decision to say like, okay, if we, if we hit these metrics, you know, the case rates and hospitalizations and uh, positivity rate, if we, if we hit those metrics and Chicago just hit another one of them today, um, which is our, 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 Cases per 100,000 people has fallen below 15 per day, which um, has been a big metric that we've been trying to achieve. When you hit those metrics, yes, you do have to lift the, the restrictions, um, and masking is a restriction. And if you hit the metrics and you say, well, we're still not going to do it because there are still some people who are vulnerable, um, A, you are risking an enormous political backlash. Um, and B, I honestly don't think that that's going to help us figure out these very, very difficult social questions about how to help how to help the immune, com- immune compromised in, in the long run. And I, I agree with you. I may I'll probably wear a mask on the train in flu season forever. Um, I might put on a mask in our elevators at school forever. <laughs> thinking about how many times my students gave me the, the flu and stuff. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, but that's different than saying, uh, you know, I, I think there's, a, there's another divide between people who have been called back to the office and, and are in a mask, you know, 30, 40 hours a week and, and people who, who only have to wear it for to go to the grocery store or whatever um i think that the the cumulative burden of of having to do this for people that have to do it all day now if you have any doctors listening they'll be like dude shut up i've been wearing a tight k95 for <laughs> 12 hours a day since march 2020 i want to hear from you buddy but uh but, but most people are not doctors right like most people are going to perceive this as a um as a hassle at minimum you know and um, if indeed we we have set metrics to lift mass mandates and then we don't do it or we lift them, <clears throat> and then Chicago says, "Oh well, we're not we're not going to lift it or, or whatever," you know, I, I think that that's very I think that's very dangerous politically and and um, not a lot of polling of Illinois, but I think this is shaping up to be a Republican wave here, and I I like really don't want to live through another four years of some Bruce Rauner type standoff with the legislature. It's just can we please not do that again? And so. In my mind, it's 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 important because of the type of people that are waiting in the wings to take over power in this country, and in the state, um, that we that we meet people halfway, uh, understanding that there is no there is no way to approach COVID that does not have risks um, and downsides, um, and that uh, 
you know, risks and downsides come with mitigations and they come with lifting mitigations. Um, and uh, I think it's become kind of cheap to say we have to learn how to live with this, but I, I do think that we have to learn how to live with this because um, I'm, I'm concerned. Uh, I, I know so many people in mental health crisis right now. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I just don't know how you separate that from kind of like the way that we are living here in Chicago, which is, which is, a, which really is very different than, than what, the way people in other parts of the country are living. So, well, yeah. And by the way, it's, um, again, Chicagoans, which, which you, the, the phenomenon that you describe walking from, uh, Michigan Avenue. So if anybody's outside the city, walking from the East edge of the city all the way to the West loop, not far from uh, where our old studio used to be, uh, when you're going through the downtown, that's, that's one particular trek of an area hit hard by the COVID, uh, by COVID, because that's the work district where people used to flock, used to go downtown every day to work, and then they would go to these bars and restaurants after work. Um, the, I could tell you that it's picking up around the rest of the city. So, for instance, I said it was a Bulls game packed. They were playing the lowly king, packed. And except for me and my buddy Monroe, nobody was wearing a mask. <laughs> okay? And uh, <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. Players aren't wearing masks anymore. So uh, Chicago has moved on. I mean, we're, uh, we're going to start our hideout shows again. And uh, Maya Dukmasa and myself. So, you know, Chicago has moved on. That decision about going back to work, again, is a bigger discussion. Because I think companies are weighing the costs and benefits of having their workforce together in one place and saving on rent. And, uh, it, you know, I, I do believe that's an element in it. I want you to get, but I'm going to shift to this point. I think what you talk about is people looking back and then uh, there is a lot of rewriting of history that happens. Uh, but not just by politicians, but by uh, ordinary human beings. I see, I've been seeing it for years, David. And the, I may have said this to you before, the Republicans are really good at just pushing the conversation to the right, pushing the conversation to where they want to have the have it. And so um, people go, oh, I'm going to vote for the Republican because Pritzker was the one, Pritzker closed down our economy. Oh, yeah. You were cheering him. You were scared out of your mind, you hypocrite. You were so freaking afraid that this disease was going to kill you, you know? And that you, you, you talk about, uh, it's like the utter hypocrisy of individual human beings. Do you follow what I'm saying? Uh, I just And then you just take it on a macro level and it could t tip an election. But all these people who are like, oh, we don't need masks. You were singing a different song, my friend, in uh, April of 2020 when nobody knew the full ramifications of this illness. So I do believe the Republicans have successfully once again <laughs> moved the conversation uh, to the right. And yeah. uh, they're good at that. And, but we need to be ready for it. You know, I saw, I saw an ad the other day. And, you know, laugh, laugh at it if, if you want. I forget what race this was for, but um, it was some Republican because um, I was doing a little research for this article. And um, it was, a, you know, it was a picture. It was a, sorry, it was a video of like adults like living it up in a, in a restaurant and bar type situation, you know, packed out the gills. And then, uh, and then video of, of kids in, in masks, you know, like separated at schools. Um, and the tagline was like, you know, 
while the, while the grownups go live their lives and have their fun, they're, they're still inflicting this stuff on your kids. Um, and this, this appeal <clears throat> to parents, I think, uh, well, that's going to work particularly well with like kind of lower information voters or people who are less engaged generally. Um, but, but who have this like generalized sense of being abandoned by society for, <laughs> for the last two years as, as parents, I think particularly the parents of young kids, but all, all school age, all the parents of school age, age kids have been in hell for, for two years. Um, I think that that's a, it's a potentially potent message. Um, the, the idea that adult society has gotten back to normal and that we're allowing people to do whatever they want. Um, but we're still again, imposing this pretty onerous restriction on our children. Um, we, we need to be ready for that. Now that doesn't mean, you know, you lead, you allow politics to say, we're, we're going to unmask the kids before we think it's epidemiologically sound to do so. Um, but you also don't want to set the targets so unrealistically high that we never actually get to do it. Um, and so, uh, I said, I did see one thing in Chicago that, uh, to, to be considered low transmission, we want to have less than 20 cases a day in the city. And I, that seems like delusional to me based on the, <laughs> based on the disease properties of Omicron. But, um, I, I think that, uh, at the very least, strategists on our side need to understand that the GOP thinks that they won a huge victory in Virginia by focusing on education and all its, you know, the critic from this critical race theory nonsense to masking to school shutdowns to um, the quarantine procedures in schools, which are really kind of um, a little bit extra in some places. That they think that this is the terrain that they're going to fight in 2022 on. Um, you know, we're fighting for your kids, and the and the Dems want to you know, want centralized control of your children. So, you know, I mean, take what, take any kind of real concern the parents might have and then weaponize it, um, propagandize it and, and just come at us relentlessly with it. And, uh, I am concerned that if kids are still unmasked in the fall, that, um, in, in the cities, that again, that's going to fracture the democratic coalition because opinion polls are starting to show, you know, 20, 25, 30% of Dems, Want to, want to be done with these mask mandates. And that doesn't sound like much, but you, you're going from a situation where we had near total party unity on mitigation measures to, to a place where our own coalition is fracturing around an issue that I think is going to be very salient at election time. Um, and, uh, and I think that we need to get ahead of it as to the greatest extent that we can without needlessly jeopardizing people's lives. Uh, and then the uh, another issue, of course, uh, that could cause big problems for Democrats uh, in November uh, is crime. And I'm watching this in real time here in the state of Illinois, where uh, Ken Griffin, the state's richest man uh, and uh, the chief funder of the Republican Party in the state of Illinois, is backing uh, the, the mayor of Aurora, Richard Irvin. Uh, he's already kicked in uh, twenty million dollars, and which more to follow. And it, it's relentlessly pounding away on the issue that uh, Democrats allow lawlessness, but Irvin will uh, clean things up and crack down. And I listen. I've lived through so many uh, uh, white backlashes, politically speaking. I've, <laughs> you know, you, the longer you live, the more you add them up. And uh, and so I see ever since the the riots uh in 2020 i said oh this is gonna hit this is gonna pay the dems are gonna pay for this uh and we're seeing it uh and to the point 
Eric Adams, newly elected mayor of New York City, a Democrat, I'd like to say, uh, ran as a Democrat, uh, and um, a black man, I should point out. Uh, he His budget, his first budget, I haven't read all the details, I just read the headlines and the opening lead, uh, the openings of the stories, David, very much anti-defund the police. Uh, he's, he says he recognizes that the tax burden on the property owners of New York is high, so he's trying to reduce city spending, but he's not going to reduce spending on police, which is the exact opposite message that was coming out from the left uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And so I think Democrats are already responding to the push, the, the, um, uh, the push of Republicans to use crime as an issue. How far do you think the Dems will go to the right on this as we head into November? Well, it's a great question. I'm, I, I might just turn it around a little bit and say, um, we never did anything about it in the first place. So, <laughs> um, I mean, nobody defunded the police. So it's, it's like the Republicans are running against a, a slogan from the summer of 2020 uh, that has yet to really find any meaningful purchase in the real political world. Um, that is, mayors, I mean, and this is policy that's really made at the municipal level, um, but mayors have really been unwilling to defund police and city councils have been unwilling to defund the police, not just because they're afraid of the blowback, but it's not its not always exactly clear what that, what defund the police means, um, which is why I think it's not, it's not the greatest way to sell um, a restructuring of services uh, where you, you you are able to call someone without a gun for a variety of problems that you currently have to call the police for. Um, and asking, you know, asking police to, to be doing things that they're very much not well situated to do, like deal with mentally ill people and, um, uh, you know, other, other social crises that, uh, unfortunately, in, in the United States, you call 911 and you get a, you get a police officer there. Um, so for, yeah, so first we never defunded the police, <laughs> right? Um, and there, there has been a, a, you know, there's a bit of modest increase in, in violent crime, but, um, there's a pretty well-known finding in political science that, that crime, um, has, has generates real political consequences for, for people in power. That is, if you're in power during a spike in crime, um, it, it can be very bad for you because as much as uh, on the left, we want to contextualize crime and explain it and, and say the various ways that that our society is, is failing um, failing people and, and leading them to, to do these kinds of things the reality is at the end of the day even a lot of white urban liberals are kind of conservative um, in their desire for for radical or practical change you know it's like so a lot of people sitting in their very fancy houses being like, yeah, man, blue, you know, black lives matter for sure. I got the sign on my lawn. But then when it's like, okay, so can we raise your taxes like $5 to pay for this thing? They're like, no, <laughs> now I'm a Republican. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, people don't, you know, pe politicians cannot go out and be like, I'm going to make your life worse, um, in order to address this problem. Um, they're, they're kind of put in this position of being magicians. Where it's like okay, so we got to we got to solve um, grinding poverty and uh, generational problems in different parts of Chicago, but we can't we can't cut the police budget and we can't we can't raise property taxes, <laughs> or else the people will revolt. Um, and so, yeah, I mean Adams, as much as I, to go back to Twitter, people on the left like really hate Eric Adams on Twitter, 
and I'm, I mean, I don't like him either, but, but he's popular. Um, I would guess that Lightfoot is popular. It makes me so sad, but Lightfoot is probably popular. Um, and I, I think that now is, is definitely not the time that you're going to see prominent Democrats trying to implement any kind of strategy um, that would do more than, than, you know, nick around the edges of a, of a police budget or, and I, I, the other unfortunate thing really um, is that the focus on budgets seems to have closed off the conversation on any other kind of police reform. Um, that is uh, in the summer of 2020, we, okay, yes, we were talking about defunding the police, but we were talking about a, a variety of other mechanisms that could be used to, to, to achieve what the end goal here is, right? was to reduce violence perpetrated by police officers against innocent people or even against not innocent people who, who don't necessarily need to be shot and killed. Uh, right. And that, I feel like that goal has kind of been lost in this, in this ideological battle where we're, we're now dug in our trenches about, about defund when I think more achievable goals of, of simply of sort of reining some of this stuff in, um, are, are out there and we're, we're no longer talking about that stuff either. So um, that's unfortunate because I do think don't murder people is a, is a political winner. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, that's been kind of puzzling and, and, and disappointing to me in terms of the, uh, how this issue has unfolded nationally. Also, also in Chicago, you know, it's, it's not, I know there's a reform commission and, but um you know, at a certain point, you got to deliver some some changes, or people start to wonder whether anything is is, is yeah. going to happen with this at all. Well, Eric Adams and Lori Life are two uh, contrasting uh, approaches to uh, getting into office. Lori Lightfoot came in. I don't want to go too far afield on this as a police reformer, and it was a totally different time when she was elected, uh, twenty nineteen before George Floyd, before COVID, before the riots of twenty twenty. It was a different world, politically speaking, than the one that uh, Eric Adams is in. Now, Lori Lightfoot is sounding more like Eric Adams. And uh, I just read this initiative coming out of Eric Adams uh, in New York City, and I think it's going to be followed up here in Chicago. They're going to crack down on, I don't know if we call it lawlessness, but bad behavior on the subways. And so you just can't use the subway uh, as your homeless shelter. If you're sprawled uh, across a couple of seats, they're gonna you're gonna get arrested, and I don't know where they're gonna take. They, they the details haven't been really presented, David, but they they make it seem like we'll take you to a shelter as opposed to a police station. So I'm sure that'll be under the category of working things out uh, <laughs> as they go along. But I know that'll be hugely popular in New York, and it'll be all about uh, turning the subways back. Uh, to quote unquote working New Yorkers as they go open up the office buildings, et cetera, and so forth that you're talking about. So the two things are sort of joined together. Uh, but it's again, it's a big contrast from the where we were. You're right, where we were right after George Floyd. And you're absolutely correct when you say none of it was ever enacted. But I feel this is just backlash politics. Some of it is absolutely necessary. You don't want your subways to become homeless shelters. I mean, they're correct in that point. Um, but it's just a different world, politically speaking. And you're right. The Democrats are going to have to figure out 
uh, how they're going to deal with it. And and I do agree with you that it was not a coincidence that February 28th, they, all these Democratic governors, uh, uh, you know, said they're going to lift the mask mandate at the end of the month. I will close with your column this week. Uh, interesting contrast between South Carolina uh, and Illinois gubernatorial elections. Uh, we talk so much in the show about Illinois, so no need to go there. Uh, talk a little bit about what's going down in South Carolina uh, and the implications for the Democratic Party. Sure. Um, so South Carolina and Illinois are, are strangely similar um, in terms of their partisanship. There's a organization called the Cook Political Report that, um, that creates an index called the Partisan Voter Index, and it, it's a it's a it's a mashup of the last you know three or four elections in that state, and how far to the left or the right the state votes, and so. Illinois is a, is a Democratic plus seven state and South Carolina is a Republican plus eight state. Uh, that's an average, right? Like obviously Biden won this place by 17 points and um, didn't lose South Carolina by 17 points. But it, this goes back to these gubernatorial elections and national elections and congressional elections um, because, uh, you know, 2020 was a good environment for Democrats in, in Illinois. And so was 2018, but 2022 probably won't be. Um, and one of the one of the interesting things about a comparison between these two seemingly similar states um, is that we've we've repeatedly elected Republicans to statewide office here in Illinois in the 21st century. You know, there was there was Mark Kirk, there was Bruce Rauner, um, I believe there was a couple of treasurers and um, comptrollers, right? Like just people are just you know, Democrats in Illinois are, are just when they're they're pissed off at, at Democrats in office. They're willing to just, they're just like, okay, well, let's try the Republicans. How bad, how bad could it be? And then they get in and they're like, oh, wow, this is really bad. <laughs> let's get rid of this person. But, uh, but it's, it's a repeated cycle. And that just has not happened in South Carolina. Um, so I, I, I wrote about this in the column, but the, um, the difference in spread between the 2014 and 2018 um, gubernatorial elections in these two places, in Illinois, it was over 20 points. Um, that is, uh, you know, Rauner won by... What, three or four points in 2018 and then lost by 17 um, in 2018. And in South Carolina, the spread was only eight points. In other words, the Democrats only did eight points better there in 2018 than they did in 2014, and it still wasn't nearly enough to get into office. Um, so all of that is like a wind-up to say, um, I've been interested for a while in the strategy of state parties that are that are just outnumbered, you know, fundamentally in that place. Like maybe not a landslide state like uh, California, but but a place where you lose consistently, it's it's bad, but not too bad. And, and how do you approach the politics of that moment? And in Illinois, of course, I mean, your your listeners have heard all about this, but you know, it's it's the it's the crazy MAGA people versus you know, I guess the Republican establishment trying to find somebody they think could actually win here. Um, and in South Carolina, it's you you got a a blue dog. A Democrat, former congressman named, named Joe Cunningham, who's just an absolute waste of space in Congress, who um, <laughs> wants to be governor. And then there's um, a, a Democratic uh, member of the state Senate, a, a black woman named uh, Mia McLeod. And um, I think there's a real chance that Illinois Republicans are going to pick the crazy person who's going to lose by 10 points. But I also think um, in South Carolina, I think that the Democrats are doomed either way. Uh, and, and so my feeling, just like in the Kentucky Senate race against Mitch McConnell in, in 2020, when uh, the, the party establishment and the state's primary voters went with this, uh, what was her name? Amy McGrath, uh, who, who got 
it got blown out so badly you, you could see the explosion from space. And there was a there was a very compelling um, black candidate named Charles Booker who I put a scare into McGrath, but but couldn't get any support from the party elites. And and to me, I I would just rather go with the with the young, fresh face who's more representative of your state's primary voters um, rather than the the general election moderates that you're probably not going to get in this place anyway. Um, go with the go with the dynamic young star. Uh, you know, go, go with a black candidate in a state where most Democrats are black. Um, be be um, you know be pragmatic about it, right? You don't want to nominate AOC to, to run for, for governor in South Carolina. Um, but this, uh, but the Senator is nothing like that. I mean, she's, she's otherwise relatively moderate in some ways, but, um, she's just, uh, it's like a different face for the party. And I think that the path back to power in the South in particular, I feel like we saw this in Georgia, um, is you, you, you have to, um, you have to give the base of your party, the, the, the power that it deserves, right? You need to nominate black women and men into into major um, statewide office fights in places like South Carolina, and and maybe over time you can you can kind of claw some of some of those losses back. But um, yeah, so I, I you know it's just a, it's a sort of a fascinating contrast. We're all going to be focused on Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and all these gubernatorial races in the Senate. Um, and I just I just kind of wanted to take a couple of days and just look under the hood in, in places that are not really going to get much national attention this year um, and see if it could tell us anything about where, where the parties are headed. And I, I think Republicans are mostly headed to crazy town and um, <laughs> Democrats are, are not. I mean, that, that, and that's part of what the lessons that each party drew from 2020. I think we've talked about this before, but Republicans think that they won and Democrats think that they lost. Um, and so we, we've been conducting this like postmortem for two years that blames the progressives for everything. Um, and Republicans like lost all three branches of government. Hello, um, but they're but they're acting like they won because they think that they won because they've all lost their minds, um, and so they're going to keep at it with the with the MAGA people. Um, and meanwhile, over here, we're we're like running from our own shadow. And um, it's always smart to to know when you're on the wrong side of an issue or whether one of your slogans is is politically toxic. But um, I don't think that that means that we need to not nominate progressives for for offices that they could potentially win um, and not nominate people, even in places where progressives are a no-go, find the most progressive person that you can that's acceptable to the, to the electorate there. Uh, it's like Joe Cunningham just lost a house race. I mean, he's not going to become the, the governor of South Carolina. So you, you might as well try to uncover some, some real political talent that, that could win an office in a more favorable environment, right? Like maybe this, uh, maybe the state senator she's going to lose this year, but, Maybe she runs for Senate in two years in a, in a better environment and wins, you know, so you, that's how you nurture talent. So, yeah, that's all, that's all I got about that. Uh, uh, I think that's a great point. And um, I feel that uh, if anything else stems, look at what's going on with Joe Manchin in the Senate. And it's not really a, a path you want to go down uh, anywhere where you have Repub uh, Dems running as sort of like Republicans so they don't push the the values uh, that distinguish Dems from Republicans. You got what I'm saying? So what's the point? And I agree. It's uh, get people, try to get people used to voting for, uh, I don't know, liberal or progressive, whatever word you want to use. It's a very compelling argument you make. And also force progressives and liberals to learn how to campaign 
in areas that they don't usually rush to. You know, I mean, I just think that's a valuable uh, tool. Over time, you might get good at it, you know, and, uh, but you're right to just to run away from the things that your, the, your base believes in, because you just assume your base is going to go along with anyone with a D next to it. And you're hoping to round up a few Republicans. I, I just don't think that works. And, uh, uh, we'll save for another time, a discussion of Illinois, cause I could talk about Illinois for another hour and we've already, uh, completed this show, but, uh, it'd be very Next time, yeah. Uh, what the what the I'm not. I'll put it to you this way: I'm not so certain. We'll hold this off for the next show. Uh, that MAGA can defeat Richard Irvin, the uh, Aurora mayor, in a primary, because to a certain degree, money does talk in politics, and all the money, the big money, is with uh, Irvin. And you're just going to see. You're going to get so sick of his campaign commercials uh, by the next time you're on the show that you may agree with me. Uh all right, David, uh, a blast talking to you as always. Stay off of Twitter. Your wife is correct. I know you're going to not heed me and not heed her, and you're going to be right back at it. Uh, but, I'm, uh, tweeting, I'm tweeting as we speak, Ben, so sorry. <laughs> but, uh, thanks thanks again for having me on. I, I appreciate it. It's always a good time. <laughs> All right, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours activities excursions and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.